Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and Kelia, huge book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we'll be doing the 1985 book and 1988 movie, The Accidental Tourist. But first, we want to remind you of all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect with us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And we really want to encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. And as always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. One dollar a month or five, if you're feeling especially generous and want some awesome perks, will help us keep doing this. And we love doing this. Okay, so like I said, The Accidental Tourist, book from 1985, written by Ann Tyler, movie made in 1988, so only three years different. Are we ready for the recap? Sure. Okay. I'm also just going to start giving just a tiny bit more info about the book before I do the recap. That's just another thing. So, The Accidental Tourist is a 1985 novel by Ann Tyler that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction in 1985 and the Ambassador Book Award for Fiction in 1986. The novel was adapted into a 1988 award-winning film starring William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, Gina Davis, for which Davis won an Academy Award, and I have a lot to say about all of that. In a minute, but here's our recap. Set in Baltimore, Maryland, the plot revolves around Macon Leary, an author of travel books for businessmen whose concern was how to pretend they never left home, who wants safe and comforting accommodations and food, who 
want to travel without a jolt. His son was killed in a shooting in a fast food restaurant. He and his wife Sarah are separately lost in grief, and she eventually moves out. He goes through a very long and very wordy depression. He is eccentric. He hates to travel. He hates change. He believes in systems and saving energy to the extreme, like not changing his clothes, washing his dirty things in the collected shower water, etc. His systems are intricate, routines of his own devising, aimed at reducing the likelihood that anything unfamiliar will occur. The, the unfamiliar is never welcome in Makum's life, and he believes that left to himself, he can block it out, or at least neutralize it. Also worth noting about Makum, he can never stop himself from correcting the improper word choice, even if the incorrect usage occurs in a conversation about the death of his child. In other words, it's pretty understandable why Sarah bailed. When he breaks his leg due to a fall involving his dog Edward and one of his little contraptions, his crazy home inventions, he returns to his family home to stay with his eccentric siblings, his sister Rose, his brothers Porter and Charles. The siblings' odd habits include alphabetizing the grocery in the kitchen cabinets, playing a card game with rules only they understand, and ignoring the ringing telephone. When his publisher Julian comes to visit, Julian finds himself attracted to Rose. They eventually marry, although Rose later moves back in with her brothers, followed by Julian months later, who becomes part of the family. The dog, by the way, is a menace and uncontrollable. Makem is finally forced to deal with him because he's making life a living hell for his whole family. So, Makem hires Muriel Pritchett, a quirky young woman with a sickly son, to train his unruly dog, and soon finds himself drifting into a relationship with the two of them. This takes an awful long time to happen, but eventually he gives in to first the dog needing to be trained, then the training being done by Meryl, and then the relationship with Muriel herself. Muriel, by the way, is the exact opposite of Macon's wife. She is brash and talkative, pushy. She's less classy, less educated, fond of wearing eccentric, bright, and colorful outfits. Despite his initial resistance to the relationship, Macon finds that he is constantly surprised by Muriel's perceptiveness, her strength, her optimism, as well as her quirky habits and ability to listen. Macon's natural love for the familiar and resistance to commitment results in a relationship that is quite a struggle between the pushy Muriel and the passive Macon. But over time, Macon becomes attracted to both Muriel and her son Alexander, and moves in with them in their tawdry little house. And he sort of checks out of reality during this relationship. His, his indifference to his former life is so great that he doesn't even get upset when the pipes of evil in his old house burst and ruin his old living room. Makem slowly finds that he loves the surprise of her, and also the surprise of himself when he's with her. In the foreign country that was her street, he was an entirely different person. Surprise, however, is not quite enough, so when Sarah, the not-yet-divorced wife, through a singularly articulate critic of Makem, finds that in her criticisms do not entirely invalidate Makem as a whole, as a male, as a husband. She wants him back. Muriel wants to keep him. A fierce tussle ensues, sort of, one of which Makem takes a largely spectorial interest. He cannot entirely resist the suitable Sarah, nor forget the unsuitable but vivid Muriel. Sarah is pretty determined that they should reconcile, and so he goes along with it, or at least a little bit. Then he goes to Paris for work, and Muriel follows him. Despite him telling her over and over that he isn't interested, she badgers him. Then he gets injured, and Sarah shows up to take care of him. And then he leaves her for Muriel once and for all. The end. Okay, here's the movie. The Accidental Tourist is a 1988 American drama film directed by Lauren Kasten and starring William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, and Gina Davis. It was scored by John Williams. The film's screenplay was adapted by Kasten and Frank Galati from the novel of the same name by Ann Tyler. It was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Up Against Rain Man, Best Supporting Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Supporting Actress for Davis, who won, beating out 
Sigourney Weaver. And, okay, sorry, we'll get to that in a second. John Williams was nominated by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for Best Original Score. Recap. Nathan Larry, William Hurt, is a Baltimore writer of travel guides for reluctant business travelers, which detail how best to avoid unpleasantness and difficulty. His marriage to his wife, Sarah, Kathleen Turner, is disintegrating in the aftermath of the murder of their 12-year-old son, Ethan. Sarah eventually leaves Makem, moving out of their house and into an apartment. After he falls down the basement stairs and breaks his leg, Makem returns to his childhood home to stay with his eccentric siblings. Makem is pursued by Muriel Pritchett, Gina Davis, an animal hospital employee and dog trainer with a sickly son. Makem eventually hires Muriel to put his dog through much-needed obedience training. Although Muriel at first seems brash and unsophisticated, Makem eventually finds himself opening up to her and trusting her, and he moves into her apartment. When Sarah's apartment leases up, she moves back to their old home and suggests to Makem that they start over. Makem leaves Muriel. He and Sarah set up house once more. When Makem visits Paris for research, Muriel surprises him by showing up on the same flight and stays in the same Paris hotel which was recommended by Makem in one of his travel guides. She suggests that they enjoy themselves as they are vacationing together. Makem insists that he's there strictly for business. He keeps Muriel at arm's length. After Makem is bedridden in his room by a back problem, Sarah comes to Paris to care for him and make day trips to help him complete his travel research. Makem's back is still in pain the day before his return flight to Baltimore. Sarah proposes that they reschedule the flight and make the trip a second honeymoon, to which Makem agrees. However, Sarah continues to question Makem about his relationship and attraction to Muriel, and Makem gets mad. So the next morning, Makem dresses while Sarah still sleeps, wakes her up, tells her he's going back to Muriel. On the way to the airport, Makem spots Muriel hailing a taxi, tells the driver to stop. Thinking that the driver stopped for her, Muriel bends to gather her baggage, then catches sight of Makem in the taxi. She smiles. He smiles. The end! Okay, I'm sorry. I cannot contain it. People fucking love this movie. This movie, like, was nominated for awards. It has, like, a high thing on Rotten Tomatoes. IMDb thinks that this movie is great. Everybody freaking loves this movie, and the only thing I can think of is that in 1988, people hadn't seen movies. Because... Oh my god, this book was boring as fuck, and this movie sucked so bad. I'm sorry. So Jennifer, tell us how you came to this, and why um, you put it on our list. I, I would like to remind everyone who's listening, as always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. One dollar a month, or five if you're feeling especially generous, helps us do this, and we love doing this. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sometimes the love is peppered with frustration. <laughs> but we love doing this. Yes. Um, I love doing this. This part right here. <laughs> Suffering through the book and the movie was not filling me with love. But, okay. Let's let's start over a little bit. Um, okay. I had never heard of this movie, <laughs> nor this book. And then you put it on the list. And I was like, okay. And then I was in a used bookstore, and I found the book used. And I was like, okay. And then I read the book, and I was like, oh, okay. And then I watched the movie, and I made other noises, and now here we are. Your and turn. I'm guessing that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl aspect really got to you? Ah. Yes. Because <laughs> um, we don't talk to each other before we do one of these recordings. We don't. I saw your good read. Re- you didn't even review it. You just gave it stars. And I looked at the stars, and I went, oh. Okay, this is going to be fun. Did I give it one or two? I can't remember. You gave it three, but you normally give almost everything five even if you don't really like no, it. No, no. Because you're really generous about your stars. I went back and changed it. Because okay. three is like my default of like, well, I guess it was fine. But then I went back and changed it. I think on my personal Goodreads, it has one or two now. I always I've... felt that you're being tactful because you'll rate things higher than I will usually. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty forgiving. <laughs> um, okay, so we're looking at something to do for November. And I remember this being kind of a Thanksgiving-y sort of thing. Yes, there is a Thanksgiving dinner that happens in this movie. Yeah, and so that was, well, there's a <laughs> Thanksgiving-y sort of thing involved. Did you see this movie in the 80s? Yes, yes. I saw it in the theaters. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Because it was the film at the time. I would liken this a lot to Crash. Where, at the time, people really liked it. And then... Wait, do you mean Crash, the movie about people having sex next to car accidents? You know what? Somebody asked me that. I would... You mean the James Spader film where people get off yeah. having, you know, car and crashes? And everyone looked at me going, that's a film? I was like, yes! That's totally a film. I've seen that film. That film was better than this film. By the way... So the other Crash film was Sandra Bullock, where you have, like, these... That's, like, race relations in LA, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty terrible film in a lot of ways. Okay. Didn't see it. But it was kind of the darling at the moment. Okay. It was like, ooh, that's so deep. It's talking about race relations. It's like, it's the most superficial way of doing it that doesn't really get into any reason, like, why do you have race issues to begin with? Um, but it was darling at the time. It was really popular. And then as time goes on, people review it and go, uh, yeah, maybe. So, I mean, and that's basically what I said this morning. I said to somebody else, like, I feel like. Maybe if you saw this movie in 1988, you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is cool, because there wasn't a lot of Manic Pixie Dream Girls, and also, I don't know, there's a cute dog, and William Hurt can do no wrong, and blah, blah, blah. But, like, watching it in 2019, almost 2020... 30 years later, basically. Yeah. No. It just, <laughs> and it's not that it aged badly. There's nothing in it that is, like anachronistic, really. I mean, a little bit with the travel, you know, like mm. what you can and can't bring on a plane, a little tiny bit. But like, for the most part, it's just, well, and then like, you know, these travel guides, like we don't really, there are travel guides out there now that are book form, but a lot of people use the internet and, and you know, now we have Yelp reviews and stuff for restaurants. And so like, his whole shtick isn't really... Back in the day, I remember using travel guides a lot. When I was in Tokyo 10 years ago, we used a travel guide. And, yeah. and London, too. Like, So they, they, they definitely get used, but it, it, it is a little... So that's the only thing I could say that aged, quote-unquote, aged this, besides mm -hmm. like the type of cars they drove and some of the interesting fashion choices. But she's a manic pixie dream girl, so literally I could see freaking... Taylor Swift wearing those outfits and like, you know, Mandy Moore, somebody, I, I'm old, I can't think of a young little media <laughs> starlet right now, but I could see those outfits being definitely worn again right now. So I don't know, man, I just... She is, except there's uh, their relationship towards now and she's like super pushy and she's mailing him a calendar with like the date of their wedding on it. Yeah, okay, so... And her son is just like tiptoeing and also her dog training. Don't train your dogs the way Muriel trains dogs. Yeah. That was kind of horrific. It was not well done. I was, Okay, so while we're talking about Muriel, let's just talk about Muriel. So the difference between Muriel and the book and the movie is that in the book, she was pushy, but she wasn't as... She got more conniving as the book went on. She started out kind of like maybe a little extra friendly, but... She just, she was like a friendly personality. And then it kind of grew from that. In the movie, like, she starts out freaking predatory. Like, mm. he comes in, he's like, you know, I need to board my dog. She's like, well, why can't you stay with your wife? And he's like, that's not an option. Well, why? Like, she's really pushy. And then he goes, you know, she, uh, we don't live, you know, whatever he said. And she's like, oh, don't you have a wife? Like, she's like on the prowl for 
a male companion and like this he comes in to pick up the dog and they make a big deal about her coming out in a special outfit and like sit presenting herself to him to try to get his attention in the book i feel like she wasn't hitting on him in their first encounter it kind of you know it, it, it eased into it a little bit she was but in both places she was very predatory sending him a calendar with their wedding day like harping on him about what they're gonna and then Forget like he kept saying no, and she just showed up. Now let me let me reenact this scene for you. Knock knock. I knock on your door. You open your door. I give you a letter. I say I'm sorry. I can't come to dinner tomorrow night. I had a traumatic experience last year, and I'm just not mentally available for you. I don't have the spoons, Jennifer. And you say great, and then you take me by the hand and drag me upstairs, and I go willingly. Now, okay, because it's Gina Davis taking. William heard up the stairs because it's a woman taking the man up the stairs and then saying, it's fine. Just sleep. Just sleep. It becomes very mothery, very nurturing. So she takes off his clothes and she lays him down. He says, I just want to sleep. And she goes, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Then she climbs into bed next to him and then she snuggles up to him. And then he's like, hey, this, this robe that you're wearing, can you take it off? And she's like, oh no, I'm bashful. And she kisses him. But imagine if the genders were switched. Imagine if a woman shows up to a guy's house and is like, I can't do this. I'm not emotionally ready. And he's like, sure, sure, sure. Let me take you upstairs. Let me take off your clothes. No, no, no. I just want to sleep. No, no, that's fine. Here, now that you're laying here all naked, I'll just lay down next to you. Oh, my God. It's creepy. It's creepy. It's creepy all the ways. Huff. Huff. (laughs) I just... I didn't like how she just didn't listen to him. And, and then she followed him to Paris and was like, here I am. I'm just butting into your life. So that is a big component of Manic Pixie Dream Girl is that they oh. know better and they're going to make you get out of your shell and be awesome. The I, thing is, like, I saw the movie first and the predatory thing is, is very much there. Like, she kind of, oh, are you married? And then as Susie says, he's not like, you know, the, the, the little stars light up in her eyes. Seriously. The next time he comes in, the other counter girl, she's like, oh, you're a him. Right. Let me go and, get her. Yeah. And she's got this secret smile so that they, you can tell they've been gossiping about him. Right. Which is well directed, if that's the thing you're going for. So when I read the book, it, it just had that vibe because I saw the movie right. and I was seeing Gina Davis kind of doing her thing in the film. Oh. Yeah, and she's, the thing is, like, later on, I mean, it really is ugly, and I I hate to see, like, what her son had to go through, where he's tiptoeing around the house. Yeah. And they both have this thing, like, you know, both of them act like one of those cats that got swatted, and so they're not quite sure if they can come into the room, and they're kind of edging around. Mm -hmm. Um, And that takes a lot of the tarnish off. Yeah, it's not... It's it's not romantic. It's this is not romantic to me in two thousand and nineteen. I will just, I just just know, and I just the manic pixie dream girl thing is not a trope that I particularly enjoy. So okay, I guess that that just going into that with this, he, I just uh, I feel like this they wanted to be like this is like feminist because look at her. She's a strong, capable woman. And, you know, there's a scene I really like when somebody tries to rob him and she goes, no, and smacks him with her purse. And she doesn't even think about it. She's fearless. And she has a story about like this dog attacking her. And she just put, you know, she fell off the porch, broke her arms and she put her hand up and yelled at the dog. And like, she does have these like strong and, and like she had to scrap and like, 
come up with jobs and like figure it out. And like, she's like the epitome of the side hustle in, you know, for sure. She's taking care of her kid because like the system failed her, her first husband failed her, all of this stuff. So she's empowered and yet she's all about trying to get a new husband and to browbeat make him into being her life partner. And, and I feel like there was this kind of this idea that Sarah got frustrated with Makeham and wanted him to change and he didn't. And that's why she got mad. And, and yet the same thing was happening with Muriel. She kind of didn't want him for who he was. She wanted to change him. Both of them wanted to change him. And I think what really bothered me about this book and the movie both, but the book, I'm going to hold the task more because it's a novel and you're supposed to be getting into people's heads. I didn't know what the heck Megan was going to do, who he was going to pick. Honestly, I didn't really care because I didn't like either of his options. But like, he just kind of drifted between. And then when he finally stood up and made a decision and whatever, there was no supporting evidence or contextual evidence to show why he was making that choice. It felt really slapped together and also unsustainable. It felt fairly strong when he left his bag behind and it had the picture of his son. He took the son with him. Yeah, because it's like, don't... Yeah, take the thing that's important. Yeah, that it was a beautiful metaphor of leaving behind your baggage and going without it. Great. The thing that got but me about Sarah... Mira over Sarah? Well, here's the thing about Sarah that really bothered me is... She's very unlikable in this entire film. Mm-hmm. And it seems like she should have been the protagonist in another book. Because what happened to them, the way their son was killed, that was so violent and horrible. It's like that needed to be explored. That should have been its own book. Yeah. Not this relationship after. And I made me start thinking about how do authors create pathos and empathy and get you to love a character versus emotional manipulation. And this one felt like emotional manipulation because when you first see William Hurt, you can see that he's struggling. You know, he's getting into all these weird systems. He would be the mad scientist if he was left on his own. And somebody who is genuinely going through depression and issues would do kind of these bizarre things that aren't healthy. And you look at him from the outside, you go, dude, you you need to see a therapist. You need to get on an antidepressant. But the way that it's presented in the novel looks really artificial. Mm-hmm. So if, it, if I may, I, I saw this one um, review and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. However wise and wonderful her fiction, and Tyler, is seriously diluted by the promiscuous use of artificial sweeteners. A practice as may tailor our foremost NutraSweet novelist. Yes. And I love the NutraSweet novelist. Yeah. It feels like you're getting something when it's actually just this chemical thing that's kind of damaging. Right. And I thought that, like, in some parts of the book, some parts of the book were very well written. Some of them were interesting and, and definitely had some levels. The the bit that I have when she's describing Makeham and talking about basically how he fell into doing this writing. Um, and I thought this was just, this is so good about Makeham and also her writing. So Makeham. Makeham contributed a freelance off- an article to a neighborhood weekly. His subject was a crafts fair over in Washington. Getting there is difficult, he wrote, because the freeway is so blank you start feeling all lost and sad. And once you've arrived, it's worse. The streets are not like ours and don't even run at right angles. 
He went on to evaluate some food he'd sampled the outdoor booth, but found it contained a spice he wasn't used to, something sort of cold and yellow, I would almost describe as foreign, and settled instead for a hot dog from the vendor across the street, which wasn't even part of the fair. The hot dog I can recommend, he wrote, though it made me feel a little regretful, because Sarah, my wife, uses the same kind of chili sauce, and I thought of home the minute I smelled it. He also recommended the patchwork quilt, one of which had a starburst pattern, like the quilt in his grandfather's room. His article was published beneath the headline reading, Crafts Fair Delights in Struts. There was a subhead under that, or it read, I felt so broken up, I want to go home. Until he saw the subhead, Mankham hadn't realized the tone he'd given his piece, and he felt silly. And I was like, that is Mankham, all right there, you know? This whole idea about he doesn't like the different, he doesn't, it was really well done. But we had, like, things like that. Like, we had 70 of them in this novel. And I felt like, okay, we get it. We understand who he is. Now could something please happen? Because nothing happens. I kept waiting for the story to start. And I was like, what is this story about? Is it about this marriage? Is it about them getting over the son's death? Is this about, okay, now I guess it's about Muriel. But then, like, that, he just kind of floats into this relationship. And then, okay, but then the climactic incident, what, where's the climax? In this book, is it when he gets hurt in Paris? It's when Sarah shows up? Is it when he decides randomly and with no foreshadowing at all that he's going to leave? So in the movie, he says to Sarah, he wakes her up and he says, I'm going back to Muriel. In the novel, he does not do that. He just gets up and leaves. And then as he's driving, he sees Muriel and decides to stop and pick her up. So it really felt like he, if she hadn't been standing out there, he would have just gone on to the airport. The other thing about Sarah is that she's keeping him drugged. And that came off as incredibly creepy in the movie. Where she's just having him drugged and he sleeps all the time and he can't even make a choice because she's anesthetizing him. Yes. From for life. S- for somebody who was like, you just sit back and don't participate and blah, 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 blah. And now, like, this is how she's going to solve his problems by drugging him up. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about this in The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Where people were like, oh, you're not involved. You blah, blah, blah. You don't interact with life the way I do. Therefore, you are wrong and deficient in some way. And I hate that. I, I mean, Makeham obviously was muffled, and, and but he was sad. And the book got into this more. He had a pretty rough childhood. His mm. brothers and his sister were all very flawed. Like, there's there's some serious trauma happening in that family. And it's not dealt with in the movie. It's just like, oh, these quirky it's background whimsical. characters. La, 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 la. And so, like, without the context, then you're like, oh, yeah, what a weirdo. No, man. Like... It's it felt sad. like Anne Taylor didn't know what to focus on, so she invents a bunch of quirks and considers that a personality. And the first part of the novel really put me off with, we're going to present him as quirky, and it's not well done. Mm-hmm. But then when you get into their childhood with the crazy mom, you can see where they're all like, we just want our baked potato with no spice. Because that stability is so important for children. Mm-hmm. So when they go to their grandparents, that was great character development. Yeah. You know, his uh, write-up piece was actually really smartly done. So it felt like she didn't know what to focus on and that there's a lot of padding that actually took away from what would have really created an emotional connection. Definitely. And you said you felt like Sarah could have been a protagonist in a different novel. I feel like Rose and Julian could have been a whole novel. Yeah. Like, I thought Rose, they were actually really cute together. Super cool. Okay, so Rose has the same traumatic childhood as Mayhem. So now she's like kind of stuck in this house and she's you know, taking care of her brothers, and she's definitely in this groove, and, like, they all have this thing where they get lost if they leave their neighborhood, you know, that's very cute, and so, okay, and then Julian comes in, and he kind of upsets the balance, and he believes in her, and he, you know, has raised expectations, he thinks she can do more, and, like, he trusts her, and, and likes her, and, like, 
is drawn to that that sweet domestic. And he's presented Park. as being fairly slick and sort of cynical, mm-hmm. and that for him to fall in love with Rose is actually super cute. And so then they get married, right? Off they go to live in their new apartment. It's all very modern and chic and whatever. But Rose cannot handle that. So she ends up going back to live with her brothers to take care of them. And instead of Julian being like, well, that sucked or whatever, I'm going to be bitter and sad, you know, he <coughs> moves in with her, with the brothers, to like continue to be so he wanted that family thing so it was interesting so he had like this like he was a voter and he was you know this man of the world and blah 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 and what he really wanted was like that domestic home thing and makeham started out with that domestic home thing took this little and what he wanted was to go off and have this adventure and live in the tawdry street and have you know this more adventurous little life and i just it's kind of i don't but then where are we landing like who you know what i mean is the lesson here? It's a great parallel if a writer had better use of it. Yes, I just—it's a lot of ideas, but it didn't. I also co- love. Okay, so coalesce. little little thing is in the book. His name is Julian Edge. They named him Julian Hedge in the movie, and so Rose becomes Rose Hedge. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's good. That's good. One thing I did notice in the movie that the line that I used in my recap when Makem's talking about. Muriel, and he's like, you know, she surprised him, and he surprised himself by being this other person. They gave that line to Julian in the movie when he's describing his relationship with Rose. And I was like, oh, so you took... It's a it's really a... faithful redo of the book, but yeah, there, there's yeah, a couple of little But changes. that was a major line. Like, that was a, a major part of why you could almost say that Makem chose Muriel over Sarah at the end was because he liked who he was more when he was with her instead of who Sarah expected to be in, him to be and who he had been for so long. And to give that line to Julian is great because the Julian and Rose storyline is great, but it just, again, takes away from the freaking Muriel Makem. There's a little line. Um, It's when Julian... When Rose first moves out and Julian calls... Make him to, you know, I don't know what to do. And he's like, this is what you do to get Rose. Mm-hmm. And he tells her, this is exactly what you have to say. And Rose becomes a bamf. I mean, she just takes over his office and reorganizes the whole thing in her own awesome way. So I, I love to see the Rose, the change in Rose as well, because it should be bi-directional. You know, it isn't one person changing the other. And it shouldn't be that anyway. You're supposed to complement each other. So Rose can go into the office and make the office awesome with her little rosiness. Right. And her, her hyper-organizational stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, and she does get to be a little bit slicker. If you see her in that scene, she fits into the office. She's mm-hmm. wearing kind of more power business clothes. Well, and then she handles the whole crisis of now he's in Paris and he, you know, he needs help and blah, 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 blah. And so she handles it. She's on the phone. and she, So she rises to the occasion once, once she's given a little bit of room to grow, she blossoms. Ha! Whereas, Makeham just freaking withers, and I... And there's no, there's no altering in Muriel. She's the same person. There's n- so yeah. there's no growth for her character. There's no growth for Muriel. There's no growth for Sarah. There's no growth for Makeham. He just, he's in this relationship, and then he is now in this relationship. Then he goes back to the first relationship, and then he goes back to the second. You know what? Honestly, I don't believe he's going to stay with Muriel. Like, that's the hmm. thing. Like, I just, like, he's going to, something's going to happen. He's going to get, it's, this is going to get just as old. 
because there are a couple times really when Muriel does show a lot of insight, and she does say that to him. You know, there are times you love me, and then times you hate me, and yeah, you can't so that's make a really good good basis for a relationship. Is when the person that you're trying to browbeat into marrying you, you you already know sometimes they don't really like you. Yep, that sounds totally healthy and normal. Well done, you, Kalia. Help, love. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I could see why it was popular at the time. It looks whimsical. It's treating this family that has all these quirks. And I, I kind of do like that they grew up with this card game and they all had these ideas. And it is very tight-knit, maybe not in a healthy way. Yeah, but a little codependent I, over there. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, I, I had a lot of affection for that family. Yeah. You know, well, she's like... No, not pasta, not P for pasta, not N for noodles. It's E for elbow macaroni. Although I said, and, yeah. you know what? This is not the first time she's put groceries away with the boys. So wouldn't they already know that? I feel like at this point in their life, the putting the way of the groceries would have been like a pretty firm system that would have been involved. For normal people, I, I lived with somebody for a number of years, and it didn't matter how many times I would tell him a thing that he just wouldn't learn it because he didn't have to. And so when it came to, uh, like, programming, you know, do we turn on the fan or the AC? I don't know. And he could. It's a simple. It is a super simple thing. There's this switch and that switch, and that's it. <laughs> you know, the switch that has cold on it, that's the one you use. When it comes to medicine, well, which one's the night one? The green one. It's always the green one. <laughs> the orange one. Think of the sun. It's orange. That's why they put the orange color on it. As a contrast, there's the green... It's been years. It has been years. I still have to remind him that. <laughs> okay. So I, Fair enough. But I guess if, if, <laughs> if I had been Rose, because I also alphabetize things, like, it would have driven me crazy. I'd been like, it's the same as last week, Porter. E for elbow. Come on. <laughs> she was just like, la, la, la. You could have just handed it to me before. <laughs> I love her. Okay. And I know that it's supposed to be, like, an annoying thing that they all fix each other's grammar and, and say the correct word and stuff. And I was like... What's wrong with that? Right! That's cool, man. You're That's not how you education. use the word literally. <laughs> <laughs> or momentarily. Or, yeah, all of the... Yeah, I just... I liked it. That, I mean, although his his um his little systems were a little bizarre. The way of doing things. But, you know, fine. Whatever. You're in your house. Well, you've decided to, to, to do this thing. I can see him having, like, the obsessive-compulsive thing that comes out. Mm-hmm. But... And Taylor doesn't know exactly how that works. She just yes. likes, I'm going to make them quirky, and I know this is something that some people kind of do, and so I'm going to ape it. Yeah, yeah, and it's just not done well. And then it doesn't, again, he doesn't grow and change. He's not doing his little systems anymore, but because now he's living with a, another woman who's doing all of her own systems. So you know what I mean? It's just, ah, blah. Blah, I say blah. And having the movie just literally end with them smiling at each other because... His taxi is now there. I, I just... Ugh. The, the movie did show us Ethan a little bit more. Um, there was, like, a shot of, of him playing. With, so they were like, get rid of the dog. The dog is awful. And he's like, I can't. In the book, he just says, it was Ethan's dog. And that ends the conversation. In the movie, yeah. he doesn't say that. He just says, I can't. But then he has a flashback of Ethan playing with the dog. So, like, that was sad. That was good. I really like the scene where Alex is getting bullied and he just wants to be part of the crowd because, god damn it, I I know that feeling and how hurtful that is. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, make him see him and just tell us the dog, go get him, you know, go do the thing. Yeah. And it's finally like he and the dog are on par, they understand each other, they're going to help this kid. And it was 
It was a good scene. It was shot well, too, because then Alexander puts his hand in makeup's hand and they hold hands and stuff, you know. And, um, I don't know. Sarah asked him, you know, was was the fact that there was a boy, was that part of the draw to her? And you kind of have to say, kind of, you know, a little bit. Like, I think so. This, and especially because we had both in the book and the movie, we had the scenes of him teaching sickly little Alexander how to fix a drain, uh, plumbing something with a sink. I don't know. A faucet. There we go. I have all the words. <laughs> so he's teaching him how to fix a leaky faucet. And that's a good thing. And Alexander like thrives. And Muriel's like overprotective. Oh, he can't do it. He's too little. He's too sick. He's too blah, blah, blah. He's like, no. And he teaches them. And then he buys them a toolbox for Christmas and stuff. I thought in the book they did a really good job of that, too, of having him. I think there were some bond. redeeming values and redeeming moments. Mm-hmm. I just wish the whole had been handled better. And Muriel as a character, if she were different, I think I would have liked it a lot more. Yeah. If she weren't so mad at Pixie Dream Girl and then almost like split personality at the end where it's like, I need to hold on to you and How dare you leave me? You just use yeah. me up and then blah 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 and it's like, dude, like Okay, I well, see your damage, but And also yeah. like she even says at one point in the movie, she's like, you know, um you're gonna go back to her, blah 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 and I'm like, his wife left him, lady. Like, he didn't leave his wife. His wife left him. And you act like he's the one who left Sarah, and now he's going to leave you. That's not the pattern here. The pattern is... I see that, though. I mean, relationships just get funky that way. I, I know, but she... I just And Sarah did want him back, and so she started uh, going after him at the end. Yeah, but she couldn't... The trouble with you, Makeham, she says, and then he actually kind of explodes. She's like, don't say that. Like, that's... Stop it. You know, I am my own person, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, wait for him to finish his little tirade, and then she goes, the trouble with you! <laughs> and then she just... <laughs> Says, so Sarah doesn't change at all. Do you know what I mean? And she's just, she, but, but that's the thing. Like, I feel like she was going through her own grief process. Oh, yeah. When she has that line, you know, I can't think of people as being good anymore. I think people are essentially evil. I could see that. Like, yeah, that's something that it was such a traumatic thing to happen to their kid. That should have been a lot more central because that is a life changing thing in so many ways. And it's barely touched on. Yeah, it really is. And Makeham's like, well, I always knew people were inherently bad. And you're like, okay, so that's part of his character. Yeah. So somebody who thinks that people are inherently bad because he's had this traumatic thing with his mother, and now his son has died, and now his wife has left him, this is not the guy who's going to be distracted by Manic Pixie Dream Girl flashy colors. Like, he's going to be suspicious of her. Where was his suspicion? He wasn't suspicious at all. I was suspicious for him. I'm like, she's trying to ensnare you, Makeham. She's, like, coming on to you. He's just oblivious. And I'm sorry, somebody like Makeham should not have been that oblivious. I don't feel like he was oblivious. I feel like there's a there's a, a choice to, like, center yourself and put yourself. But that takes a certain amount of work to turn everything else off around you. It seemed like he was put off by her. You know, there, and I thought William Hurt did a really good job of he'll just give her this weird look of, who are you, lady? Why are you coming after me? Mm. So yeah, I but thought then there you was could see that. it fighting away. I just ugh, it was bad. Anyways, okay, okay. So there's I, a couple themes. I, I do want to reiterate: do not train your dogs like that. Just don't like the scene where she basically chokes the dog. The, yeah, I was just and like, then he oh gets mad, God. and then she gets mad at him, and it's like this whole thing. And because some of that, like a little bit of it's true enough that people might mistake it. They took it. the dog choking scene out of the movie. Well, God, you would yeah. have to. Yeah. Because it would make her a monster. Ah. I mean, yes. <laughs> okay. So the themes of home and family 
and love. Okay, home. Home is where you make it, I suppose, even if you're in a in a tawdry street or even if you're in a whatever. Home is where you make it, and so it's okay. I like that at the end you have this non-traditional kind of setup with Julian living with Rose and the brothers, you know, going to home. That's fine. Um, family, again, like, family is good, I guess the book is telling us. <laughs> Um, okay, so as you, I was... If you can't cope without family, because if you're all by yourself, you're going to end up breaking your leg and needing to go home <laughs> to your family. Also, you just can't live alone, even if you're a high, you know, like highly functional woman with multiple jobs and you're taking care of your kid. You're not really complete until you've got a man in your house, so, you know, make sure you catch one. <clears throat> well, this made me just look at writing and writing styles and how do you, you know, write a good book. Um, and so I have a little quote from Oscar Wilde. A sentimentalist is one who, desi- who desires to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. Huh. And then I ran across a- another quote that I just went, ah, oh, that's a little too sharp. What does it mean to be a tourist inside someone else's suffering? Well, now I feel like we're talking about Fight Club again. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, and that's the thing, too. This is called The Accidental Tourist. And I feel like it should have been called the reluctant tourist because mm. accident is like, oops, I didn't mean to knock over that cup of coffee. Yeah. Oops, I stubbed my toe. That's an accident. Getting on a plane, going on a business trip and choosing to not intake in the ethnic food of wherever you're landing or to go see the museum of whatever city you happen to be in. That's not an accident. That is planned. And that's not touristy. That's non-tour so no <laughs> I yeah i get the reluctant because it is being reluctantly there but that's not yeah. what it's called it's called accidental tourist oh, no, I, yeah. that was one of the other titles that julian floated we'll call that it the was, reluctant tourist and the yeah, accident that would have been better reluctant it would have been more accurate been better. yes yes <laughs> okay um let's see here theme of love does love conquer all no is love important maybe I don't know. What do, what do you feel like this book is telling us about love? Um, yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> no, when it comes to that whole phrase of does love conquer all, it's like, well, if you're willing to sacrifice and do the thing that you need to do, but that's the stuff that you have to do. You know, it's like you don't just win the trophy because you want the trophy. You have to put in the work to actually right. make yourself worthy of the trophy. Trophy. Um, not that love is a trophy, just as an example of, you know, does right. it conquer all. With this, uh, it was more like, Makeham got to sit back and let these women sort of fight over him. Because he's a, uh, such a catch. Yeah. Well, and also, like, I guess, you know, Gina Davis got what she wanted because she persevered, took out loans, followed somebody who had broken up with her, like... Fucking stalker material here, right? Again, switch the genders. Very different movie. It becomes a horror movie. I'm here on business. I'm here too. I didn't ask you to come. I don't care. And I'm going to stay in the hotel next to you or right in the same hotel as you. And I'm going to barge into your room and I'm going to like accost you in the elevator and be like, why? Why won't we be together? Why? But, it's but so then she wins. Cute. It's no. so cute and quirky. Here, Apparently, yeah? that's how it. That's how it works, man. If and she just... puts like the extra pickles in her sandwich because it's cute. Yes, she so... basically ate a pickle sandwich. Delicious. <laughs> yes, that's how you catch a man right there. Don't ever give up and follow him around. Okay. The one thing I think that it did do well, 
was the idea of the familiar versus the new and exciting. Hmm. And so Maitland's all about the familiar. He doesn't want anything. He's like trying to organize his life so that nothing unexpected happens. But that's not how life works. And sometimes an unexpected thing is a horrible thing, like when your child is killed. And sometimes an unexpected thing is a not horrible thing, like when your dog trainer follows you to Paris and browbeats you into being in a sexual relationship with her and being a new surrogate father for her son. Maybe familiar is good. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's trying to take something that should be traumatizing and making it whimsical. Yeah, I, and it's just weird. But I I will say again, I really I really did like his family. I liked Rose and the brothers. I thought yeah. the brothers were incredibly well cast. They do have that brotherly appearance with each other. Yes, and I like how Porter's lost. How long? Oh, you know, he went to the hardware store earlier this afternoon. <laughs> no idea where he is and if he'll be back and yeah they, they saved it if you'd taken the brothers and rose and julian out of this movie it would have just been awful. but guess who didn't get nominated for any awards none of those people oh no 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 freaking gina davis which so she's... originally melanie griffith was in, going to be the gina davis role oh, god i okay <laughs> I just, I, I, okay. There are certain little quirky things, like I like that, you know, they would sit there and let the phone ring, and while Julia was there, nobody's going to answer the phone. Gina Davis. Okay, I guess it's a thing. Gina Davis, for her portrayal of Muriel, won Best Supporting Actress. Here's who she beat. Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl. Joan Cusack in Working Girl. Frances McDormand in Mississippi Burning, and Michelle Ooh. Pfeiffer in Dangerous Liaisons. Okay. The, I'm sorry. The Working Girl, I can kind of see. It wasn't that great a film. The other two, oh, yeah, that's... that's Seriously? Frances McDormand, you got robbed, is all I'm going to say. Yep. Yeah. Um, also, the, the movie, this was actually nominated for Best Picture, and thankfully, it lost to Rain Man. I mean, good grief. Thank goodness. I would be so pissed. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's, it's like the Nobel Prize. They're kind of trying to work back their respectability for literature because they have been making some really, really bad choices in the last decade. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, this book also won a bunch of awards, which is kind of sad. Nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Seriously? (laughs) Why? So, as I was looking through, like, the director's, you know, credits, Mm -hmm. I suppose, Mm -hmm. Grand Canyon is one of those films that was supposed to be one of those profound, feel-good, award-winning films of the of that year and it was just like it's one of those that again on the surface looks good but when you actually look at it with anything resembling a critical eye it falls apart really fast (laughs) and it's along the same sort of sentimental whimsical path as this and so it seemed like he was just that was the thing in the 80s this is you know, for a while, if you wanted to win an award, you made a film about the Holocaust and Hitler, and Ugh, yeah. that would get you an Emmy. Yeah. So there, there are certain tropes in there that, you know, thankfully we've moved beyond that. So remind me, because I don't have it in front of me, when did Kiss of the Spider Woman come out? Because that was our other Oh, uh, I think that was in the 70s? No, that was or... in the 80s, the, the movie. I'm trying to remember because I feel like... Okay, so William Hurt was in this movie in 1988, and the movie, you know, okay... William Hurt was in Kiss of the Spider Woman, which came out three years previous. Okay. Much better movie. Much better everything. Mm. But I feel like, because he, like, I feel like it's like, oh, William Hurt is in it. It's obvious. It adds, like, a level. You know? He's that actor. He's so good. Of course it's going to be a great movie, because it's William Hurt. 
But, my God, his acting in this sucked. I have to say, like, I understand that Macon was supposed to be, like, muffled and, like, low and blah, blah, blah. But he sounded either half asleep or vaguely drunkish. Uh, he just, he was so, which I guess is part of, like, the characterization. Except that he didn't grow and change when he was different towards the end with Muriel. He didn't seem any different. He still had his way of talking, which was not... With any kind of inflection. Again, I'll, I will say, I, I thought the last scene where he leaves behind his suitcase and he takes along the picture of his son. Yeah, was... he didn't have to talk in that scene, but yes, that was a really good scene. And yeah. then, of course, the kid running along, or there alongside of the taxi looks just like Ethan. Mm. So, you know, you had that like idea of him leaving the past and going to the future. Muriel is his future for some unknown, ungodly reason. So... We talked a little bit about this with uh, Walter Mitty, where Ben Stiller didn't make a bad film, but it was during a time when, I guess, critics' audiences were a little sick of the shtick and saw a little too much of that in the next film when it really wasn't that shtick. Yeah. It felt like William Hurt had a succession of really interesting films at that time. Like, you know, he was with uh, Kathleen Turner and Body Heat and a couple others. Mm -hmm. And so he was sort of the guy, and almost anything he touched would have been yeah. Consider gold. Tom Hanks went through that for a little while where he had a couple of films where you go, uh, okay, we liked you in Forrest Gump, so we'll still kind of try and like you, but, um, who's. But good? yeah, I see what you mean. It's, it's yeah. the timing, too, because I really do feel like even if they remade this movie, I mean, obviously we're a very different audience now, but even if they had remade it in 1990 or 1991, I feel like it, the ship might have sailed a little bit, and I don't think this movie would have gotten nearly as much love. Mm. But that's just me, because I didn't like it. Yeah, I, so. I felt the same. I felt that way when I saw Ordinary People, because there's such a thing about that film. Um, Endless Love, too. There's such a hype about it. When I actually saw it, it was like, oh, okay. That was two hours of my time. <laughs> well, never get back. Yeah, I just I didn't understand the fuss. But then that's what you do when you're a filmmaker. You create a buzz, you create a fuss. Yeah. And if you're successful, people will go see a film that... Yes. You know, a couple years later, they go, well, okay. Yeah, that was a film. I, I will say it does have certain charms to it. You know, that's one. one. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember it having certain charms, having seen it way back in the day. And you know, I saw it 30 years ago. My God, I was a kid. I was like, oh, well, that's cute. Yeah, I'm done. I have nothing else to say. I did not like this book. <laughs> I did not like this movie. I would say this book would be fine to read maybe on a plane, but you could skim it because it is far too wordy. And the movie, I would just, I would not, I just wouldn't bother with. Unless you really need some way to fall asleep. Like, you're <laughs> like, oh God, I can't sleep tonight. I I'll like Rose and Julian, home. though. They're, they're such a cute little... They're fine. Not yeah. enough of them. I've never been tempted to write fan fiction before, but I'm tempted now because they deserve more. <laughs> but yeah, no, seriously, I don't. Uh, thumbs down. I sorry. Nope. Okay, I I'm more of a you know I'll give it a C. You're, I think you're in the like the D minus F area. I wouldn't say F, but I'll definitely D minus. put it into a D. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to give it a C, maybe a C plus. Of, it's not a perfect film by any means. It does have its charms. I thought you know certain parts of it were kind of cute, and it does have. To me, it does have a character arc, you know? You, you do see him sort of growing and, and finding out that he can be a different person and being challenged. I didn't see him being a different person at all. I felt like the, the guy at the end was the same guy at the beginning.
Okay, well, that concludes a very <laughs> brief episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving.